0: Welcome to Royally Screwed, my name is Chris Shearer, and it's my honor to take you on a tour through some of history's greatest, worst, and craziest rulers. On this week's episode, we're in Rome, but not to continue the story of the Julio-Claudian dynasty. No, we're going back just before Julius Caesar started seizing power in the Roman Republic to look at one of the most famous statesmen of the age, Marcus Tullius Cicero. Cicero is most well known for being a prolific writer. His writings could go on and on and on to the point where there's a joke that basically says you could be a senator running very late to a meeting, sneak in, and ask your fellow senator what Cicero is talking about, only to have them respond, I don't know, Cicero hasn't gotten to the verb yet. Though time has taken away many famous historical writings from epic poems to important speeches, many of Cicero's works have somehow managed to stick with us into the modern day. He was a shining example of how a politician could be during the late Roman Republic. This often set him at odds with the major names of that period. He's often considered an unofficial member of the First Roman Triumvirate, the group containing Julius Caesar, Pompey the Great, and Marcus Licinius Crassus. However, he would also go on to butt heads with the Second Triumvirate, especially Mark Antony. While we've looked at the fall of the Roman Republic through the eyes of the main characters, It's also important that we also use the perspective of a side character too. Well, as close to a side character as we can get considering Cicero was a pretty important dude. So, without further ado, let's begin the story. We're going back in time to Rome in the early 1st century BCE in The Republican Man. It was a bit of a tough choice to choose what to cover in the background history lesson for this episode. We've already covered so much Roman culture with the Julio-Claudian episodes that it sometimes gets a bit hard to figure out what to do next. However, I realize that there's one major institution in Rome that has come up time and time again that has never really been properly explained. An institution with deep ties to the life of Cicero and the idea of the Roman Republic. The Senate the Roman Senate was perhaps the oldest institution in Rome, with a general agreement that the Senate probably existed throughout the time period where Rome was ruled by kings. While it's very difficult to tell if any of the kings traditionally listed as ruling Rome actually existed, Romulus was probably never a real guy, so many ancient Roman writers talk about the rule of the kings that we know there was a period of time where Rome wasn't a republic. We also know that the Senate, at the very least, predates the formation of the Roman Republic in 509 BCE. The word Senate, in Latin senatus, comes from the Latin word senex, meaning old man, and more or less means council of elders. The traditional story of the founding of the Senate says that Romulus chose 100 men from the original inhabitants of Rome and turned them into a political council. The families of these 100 men would go on to form the patricians in Rome, a.k.a. the upper-class families. Over time, more men were added to the Senate until it resembled the more traditional 300 members that would serve for life during the height of the Republic. The more realistic story of the Senate's founding predates the founding of Rome as a city. The local tribes living in central Italy would have been made up of patriarchal clans. In some tribes, there might have been a council of elders. Well, when these tribes all came together to form Rome, the patriarchs and councils eventually coalesced into a single governing board, the Senate. In the Roman Kingdom, the Senate would have acted more like a board of advisors to the king. It was only after the establishment of the Republic that the Senate would become one of the most powerful assemblies in the land. Despite seemingly being the most powerful, the laws passed by the Senate had surprisingly limited powers. In fact, they couldn't even be called laws. Laws, in Latin Lex, were passed by other assemblies in the government. The Senate passed Senatus Consulta, aka Senate Advice. While a Consultum was generally followed by the public if passed, a Lex could override it. Therefore, the most common type of Senatus Consultum passed that had any sort of weight was usually one pertaining to foreign policy, aka war. The Senate's other major power was electing dictators during times of crisis. If you haven't listened to past episodes, a dictator in ancient Rome should not be thought of in the same way we use the word today. A Roman dictator was someone elected during times of trouble, usually during a really bad war or famine, who was given sole power over the Republic until the crisis was over. Afterwards, they would step down. During this time, the Senate had the ability to veto dictator laws. As the Republic grew and flourished, the Senate also grew. As I mentioned, the alleged original number of senators was 100 men from the patrician class but grew over time. During the Republic era, the Senate also opened its doors to the Plebeians, aka the lower social classes of Rome. In the later years of the Republic, the Senate would go on to develop two different factions, the Populares and the Optimates. It's easy to think of these two groups as proto-political parties, but most Romans of the time would have just thought of them as two ideological standings. The populares championed the people, the Optimates stood for the power of the Senate. Someone could fluctuate between the two at any point. Both had their pros and cons depending on who you asked. And it was actually Cicero who would clearly define the two in his speech pro-Sestio, though his definitions are very clearly biased against the populares. Nevertheless, the Senate was a powerhouse in Rome. It even survived the collapse of the Republic, and later the Empire. The motto of the Roman Republic was SPQR, Sonates Populesque Romanus, the Senate and the People of Rome. It was Rome. So it's no surprise that some of the most famous names in Roman history should be members of the Senate. Sulla, Pompey, Cato, Julius Caesar, and yes, Cicero. Marcus Tullius Cicero was born into the Plebeian family Tullii. Though he was born in the town of Arpinum, modern-day Arpino, outside of Rome, His father was very well connected to people in the city proper. From a young age, Cicero was physically unwell and couldn't do much in the way of entering the public sphere of Roman culture. In order to make up for being behind, young Cicero spent a vast majority of his time reading. Though he was a citizen of the Roman Republic, Cicero would be considered a social outsider if he ever wanted to make an inroad with the elite of Rome. Therefore, he spent equal amounts of time studying Roman subjects as well as Greek history and philosophy. Despite Rome being one of the most ethnocentric cultures of the time, boy did those people love a guy who could read, write, and philosophize in the Greek language. Cicero would even go on to translate works of Greek philosophy into Latin. However, the young scholar still lived in Rome during a tumultuous time. The main name of the day was Lucius Cornelius Sola Felix, more commonly just known by his name Sola. Sola was a military leader who would go on to shake the foundations of Rome during the early 1st century BCE. However, Italy was currently in the midst of the Social Wars, a series of revolts by the other tribes and cultures in the Italian peninsula who wished to receive the same rights as citizens of Rome, despite not living within Rome proper. When Cicero was 16 years old in 90 BCE, he served under Sulla and Pompeius Strabo, the father of Pompey the Great, as a soldier. Two years later in 88 BCE, the war was mostly over with the Romans seemingly having come out on top except for several smaller rebellions still going on. Therefore, Cicero could leave the army in order to pursue the life he wanted, the life of a politician. Coming out of his military life, Cicero continued studying Greek philosophy under Greek teachers. In 87 BCE, he had the chance to study under the head of the Platonic Academy, a school in Greece created by the philosopher-slash-pro-wrestler Plato. Over the next few years, Cicero's name started becoming discussed throughout the Roman world as a young man who was one of the greatest students of the age. In 83 BCE, Cicero truly entered the political landscape as a lawyer. Though we don't know much about his early cases, we do have the written record of a speech he gave as a defense attorney in 81 BCE. The speech is called the Pro Quinctio, referring to Cicero's client, Publius Quinctus. The matter of the case surrounded Quinctus and his recently deceased father's business partner, Sextus Navius. Although the outcome of the case is unknown, historians generally agree that Cicero must have won because why would he publish a written version of a speech he gave in a losing case? It should be noted that, at this time, Rome was under the dictatorship of Sulla. The Roman world was in a semi-lawless crisis. Cicero's speech called upon the imagery of a lawless Rome, though he very clearly did not direct any criticism towards Sulla. And actually, this would not be the last time Marcus Tullius Cicero would make allusions to the reign of Sulla. though Cicero's defense of Publius Quinctus is his first case we have a transcript for, his first major case that would propel him into the limelight of the Roman Republic was Cicero's defense of a man named Sextus Roscius in 80 BCE. Sextus was accused of murdering his own father, who in classic Roman fashion was also named Sextus Roscius. In 81 BCE, Sextus Roscius Sr. was allegedly placed on a prescription list by a man named Chrysogonos. Okay, so let's explain some stuff there. Prescription essentially means a state sanctioned banishment or death. During the dictatorship of Sola, this was a very common occurrence. Sola came to power as dictator after winning a civil war, so his prescription list was very targeted. Chrysogonus was a former slave of Sola who acted as his steward and helped oversee the prescriptions. Part of the prescription process was the seizure of the person's property. Crisogonus accused the younger Sextus of killing his father out of the hope of illegally inheriting his father's property, which according to Crisogonus now belonged to the Republic. When Cicero decided to take on the case of Sextus, he knew it was a risky move. Patricide was a very major crime in ancient Rome. Not that it's not a major crime now, but even being involved with a patricide trial was essentially a taboo. Also, Cicero, in taking on a case against Crisogonus, was also essentially taking on a case against the Reign of Sola. However, Cicero seemed to notice some inconsistencies with the story. Also, it should be noted that he was only 26 years old at the time of this trial. That's technically not a major detail, but it's pretty impressive that a guy in his mid-twenties is going up against one of the most feared men in the Republic. So, this was Cicero's argument in the case. First, he recognized that the alleged date of the prescription against the older Sextus Roscius was actually past the end date of Sola's prescription reform. This meant that Crisogonus had illegally seized the Roscii property. On top of that, Cicero turned the case around and accused two of Sextus' relatives, both named Titus Roscius. In Cicero's argument, the two Tituses' wished to inherit the property of Sextus Roscius killed him and partnered up with Chrysogonus in order to see the younger Sextus hung out to dry. Though many law historians nowadays say that Cicero's defense was flimsy at best, it was more than enough to be the winning strategy in 80 BCE. Sextus was acquitted of murder charges and Cicero was thrust into the political battlefield of Rome later that year cicero once again gave a speech in which he criticized the reign of sola insisting that the dictator ran a government that disenfranchised the citizens of the republic who lived out in the countryside of italy it was soon after this speech in 79 bce that cicero left italy for about a year to study philosophy in greece and asia minor Now, there's no explicit evidence that he did this to run away from the potential wrath of Sola, but you can't blame the guy if that was why Cicero decided to take an extended holiday. Cicero's personal story says that he traveled east to learn and to improve his physical fitness. Well, he definitely did those two things. Under the instructions of one of his teachers, Cicero trained his lung strength and breathing for extended public speeches but Solo was now no longer a threat for Cicero as the former died in 78 BCE. Cicero returned to Rome with new thoughts in his head, a body built for public speaking, and a dream to break into Roman politics. Cicero's rise through politics was an incredible feat for someone of his rank in society, He wasn't a patrician, he wasn't even from the city of Rome. However, that didn't stop him from dominating the cursus honorum, the career path of a Roman politician. Different political positions in Rome had minimum age limits you had to be, and these age limits were different if you were a patrician compared to if you were a plebeian. Cicero was elected to a higher ranking office when he was the minimum age required almost every single time. When he was 30, he was elected as a quaestor, meaning a low-level bureaucrat who dealt with finances. He served this office in Sicily where he was praised by the locals for taking on a court case against the governor of the province. This case was especially notable for Cicero as he was up against a defense lawyer named Quintus Hortensius Hortalus, a man said to be the best lawyer in all of Rome. Equipped with his new incredible oratory skills that had been refined over the years, Cicero ended up winning the case against the Sicilian governor and Hortensius. In 69 BCE, at the age of 36, he was elected as an aedile. Aediles were Roman politicians involved in the upkeep of the capital city and the organization of festivals. Three years later, Cicero was elected as a praetor. Praetors had all kinds of duties, from some being military commanders to others being high-level magistrates with judicial powers. Cicero was the latter type. There were eight praetors elected each year. In 66 BCE, the elections had to be held three separate times before the final results were decided upon. Cicero won the most votes in all three elections. Finally, only one political position was unclaimed by the famous orator. Consul. The consul elections in 64 BCE for the consuls of 63 BCE was one of Cicero's finest political hours. There were three main players in the election, Cicero, Gaius Antonius Hebrida, the uncle of famed statesman Mark Antony, and Lucius Sergius Catalina, aka Catiline. During the dictatorship of Sola, people feared that he was raring to go for a kingship. While that never happened, the political landscape of Rome was still in a rocky place. Both Antonius and Catiline had been close to Sola at various points in history, with Catiline especially being well known as one of Sola's followers. He had also made himself a polarizing character through his other political adventures. Cicero took advantage of the uncertainty around the other men running for consul. He campaigned on the streets of Rome, calling out the two men as men who wished to lead Rome into a new age of Sulla with tyrannical reforms. Cicero's own platform was built entirely on stability. All throughout his earlier career, he had stood for the power of the Roman Constitution. The Republic didn't need reform, it needed to recognize that the way Rome had been doing things for centuries by this point was the correct path. Sulla had damaged the Republic. Little did anyone know that this damage was permanent, but Cicero hoped to move beyond that. As he had done before, Cicero won the vote in a landslide, however there were always two consuls elected, so his co-consul for 63 BCE was to be Gaius Antonius. Early on in his consulship, Cicero made a deal with Antonius. At the time, Cicero was also the proconsul aka governor of Macedonia, a very important province for the Republic. Cicero agreed to give proconsular power of the province to Antonius if the latter kinda just let Cicero do what he wanted. Antonius agreed, meaning there was kinda really only one consul operating in power for 63 BCE. Cicero would also continue to serve as a lawyer during his consulship. His two most famous trials during this time were the defense of a man who was accused of a murder that took place 40 years earlier, Cicero won the case because forensic evidence didn't exist back then and he exploited a loophole, as well as a major case over bribery. After the elections for the consulship of 62 BCE, one of the losers accused one of the winners of bribery. Well, here's the thing. Every politician in Rome used bribes in order to win elections. Cicero himself had done so to win the consulship. However, not to come off as in favor of bribery, he took on the case in defense of the accused. After winning the case with some wild ad hominem, Cicero passed a law that banned the use of bribery, or at least excessive bribery. It should also be noted that Catiline had run again for consul for 62 BCE. Once again, he lost. However, during the election period, he made comments about coming for those in power that made Cicero uneasy. Cicero started going out in public wearing armor surrounded by armed bodyguards, which was highly unethical for the time period. Though nothing would come out of this specific situation, it was not long before Catiline actually became a thorn in the side of Cicero. In October of that year, Marcus Licinius Crassus, aka the richest man in Rome and future member of the First Triumvirate, came to Cicero with a message. Crassus was a reformer, meaning he was amongst the ranks of people like Julius Caesar and, yes, Catiline. According to this message from Crassus, Catiline was fed up with the power of the anti-reformists and was gathering an army in hopes of overthrowing the current government. Cicero brought this news to the Senate. Well, despite not having won any of his runs for council, Catiline did happen to be a sitting member of the Senate. After what is said to be an incredible speech by Cicero, I watched someone do a reenactment of it and it seemed passionate enough even though I couldn't understand a single word of Latin, Catiline fled the city in order to join an army that had been gathered north of the city, thereby solidifying Cicero's condemnation as the truth. After Caterline's flight from the city, Cicero delivered a few more speeches to the Senate and the people, calling for an end to the rebellion. He then helped enact an overhaul of the justice system called the Senatus Consultum Ultimum. This was a decree that essentially let the Senate skirt the laws of the Roman Constitution in order to enact a vague form of martial law. The reality of the decree was technically meaningless, as the Senate had no judiciary power, but it was just generally accepted as a reality of the Roman justice system, even if the Consultum Ultimum was rarely enacted. With the enactment of the SCU, Catiline openly declared rebellion against the Senate and proclaimed himself as consul of a new government. In order to protect himself from the threat of the rebel government and its conspirators still within Rome, Cicero locked himself away in his own home and had his bodyguards essentially transform the house into a small military fortress, an impressive feat considering Roman houses were mostly open to the outside. The Senate then got to work deciding on what should be the fate of Catiline. Hoping to use the power of the SCU but not completely overstep his position, Cicero suggested banishing the former senator. Surprisingly, this was met with a lukewarm response. Things changed after Cicero once more received news of the rebellion, this time from a Celtic diplomat in Gaul who was propositioned by the conspirators. The Gaulish diplomat wasn't too keen on invoking the might of Rome and exposed the identities of the conspirators to Cicero. He had the conspirators rounded up once more and went to the Senate to decide their fates. Cicero originally called for the death penalty, and many senators agreed with him. Opposition arose to this decision from the current senator and Praetor Gaius Julius Caesar. Caesar was a contentious figure in Rome, even at this point. Instead of killing the conspirators, Caesar called for life in prison. Ironically, he was arguing against what he viewed as a strong authoritarian move. The future dictator almost convinced the Senate until Cato, another famous orator who was sometimes Cicero's law rival, gave a speech insisting that the death penalty was the only way to go. After a vote went out that finally condemned the conspirators to death, Caesar almost decided to start a fight in the Senate. It was only after Cicero's bodyguards intervened that the praetor stepped down. Cicero had the prisoners brought to Rome's prison, the Tullianum. The Tulianum was a former cistern that had been transformed into a prison, but this meant that the only entrance to the prison was from above. Cicero had the conspirators brought to the entrance of the prison where they were forced to hang themselves by jumping down with a rope around their necks. Yeah, that got dark. With the internal conspirators gone, an army was raised to fight against the rebels. Cicero's co-consul Antonius led a group that absolutely dwarfed the conspirators. Catiline was killed in the ensuing conflict. Cicero was hailed as a savior of the Republic. He would even go on to say it was the highlight of his political career. However, that didn't stop his paranoia he felt that he had overstepped his role in the entire Catiline ordeal. In more recent years, there's been a shift in opinions towards Cicero's role in the Catilinarian Conspiracy as it's known. There's no solid proof that Crassus ever came to Cicero with news of Catiline's involvement in a coup. Also, while there was in fact a rebel army forming north of Rome, there was also no link between the army and Catiline until he fled the city. So, even though Cicero led the Senate in putting down the revolt, In reality, he may have just gotten incredibly lucky with pointing fingers at a man he hated. Let's fast forward a bit in time now. In the following years, Julius Caesar started becoming much more popular among the people. He was joined in this popularity by Crassus and the military leader Pompey. That trio would come to be known as the Triumvirate. If you'd like more information over that story, go back and listen to episode 15 over the first triumvirate. Well to go back to Cicero, he was actually offered a spot in the group of powerful and popular politicians by Caesar himself. It would make sense to have Cicero on their side, he was popular among the people and the optimates, he was a master in the legal field. However, Cicero refused as he saw the group as a force that would undermine the very foundations of the Republic. Over the next few years, Cicero became an outspoken critic of Julius Caesar and the Triumvirate until they officially came together in 56 BCE to public acclaim. He immediately changed his tune on the Triumvirate in the hopes that Caesar wouldn't plan a character assassination on him. Or I guess a real assassination as well. The once powerful orator and statesman had been reduced to a yes-man for the Triumvirate in order to save his own skin. He stayed out of politics for a few years and focused on his personal writings and legal career. He even briefly served as a proconsul in southern Anatolia. Then Rome started falling apart with the collapse of the First Triumvirate. Crassus was dead. Pompey and Caesar had gone from uneasy allies to outright rivals. Civil war was brewing, and that meant everyone who was or had been in the political field of the Republic was forced to choose a side. Cicero did not necessarily want to choose either man as his ally but shifted his favor towards his fellow Optimate, Pompey, though with clear signals that he wasn't completely dismissing Caesar. When the future dictator crossed the Rubicon in 49 BCE and invaded Rome, Cicero fled to meet with Pompey's army out east. He was called out by Cato, who was also with Pompey, who insisted Cicero's more moderate take on the Civil War, if you can even call it moderate, would have been more useful to the Optimates if he had stayed in Rome. Nevertheless, Cicero stayed with the Pompeian faction until their defeat at the Battle of Pharsalus. Cicero was hesitant on what to do next until Caesar pardoned him and allowed the statesmen to return to Rome. Once he returned to the city, Cicero tried to figure out how the Republic would survive under the reign of dictator Julius Caesar. He continued writing and his works even suggested he believed Caesar might not completely destroy the Republic. Then, in 44 BCE, Caesar was assassinated. It's said that after Caesar was killed, famed killer Brutus raised his dagger in the air and called upon Cicero personally to restore the order of the Roman Republic. And even though things would grow worse from there, that is kind of what Cicero did. The two biggest names in Roman politics were now Cicero and Mark Antony, nephew of Cicero's former co-consul and favorite of Caesar. Antony ruled as consul while Cicero was essentially the voice of the Senate. The two men absolutely despised each other though it was Antony's job to enact the will of Caesar, Cicero viewed the consul as taking liberties with the dead dictator's wishes. Seeking to get someone who was possibly more compliant to the will of the anti caesarian faction, Cicero started courting favor with Caesar's actual heir, Octavian, the future Emperor Augustus. Since Octavian was still fairly young, Cicero and the Optimates thought they could pit him against Antony in the public sphere as the successor of Caesar who, despite everything, was fairly popular with the citizens of Rome. Unfortunately for Cicero, Octavian and Antony, along with a man named Marcus Aemilius Lepidus, formed the Second Triumvirate. Their goal? Dish out revenge against their enemies. While this mainly meant Caesar's assassins, Antony also put Cicero in the line of fire. He fled from Rome in hopes of avoiding his own death. For a while, this actually worked because he had been so popular, most people were unwilling to give up Cicero's location when asked. Unfortunately, the power of the Second Triumvirate caught up to him. Two Roman soldiers caught Cicero as he was fleeing a country villa in hopes of leaving Italy. His last words are reported as, I go no further, approach veteran soldier, and if you can at least do so much properly, sever this neck. Cicero recognized he had lost and would die with honor. He was then beheaded. However, Antony had also ordered for Cicero's hands to be chopped off as well, considering he had used them to pen many personal attack essays against the Triumvir. Though there would be many, many more factors that would lead to the Republic collapsing and rising again into an empire, I'd like to think Cicero's death was sort of its last breath. He was all about the glory of the Republic, even if he personally wrote many times about how it was a shadow of itself compared to past centuries. There's a reason that it said Brutus called upon Cicero himself to restore the Republic after the rule of Caesar. Just like the Senate, in a sense, Cicero was the Republic. Though his political ideologies sometimes shifted, at least in Cicero's eyes, it was always to preserve the standard of the state but even in death, Cicero was hard to forget. His writings managed to survive long after he was killed. In fact, his writings were even prevented from being destroyed later when the Christian church was attempting to destroy heretical writings. Cicero was given the title of a righteous pagan and his philosophical works were studied by prominent members of the clergy. Perceptions of his work have varied over the years. In some eras, they were the height of philosophical genius, Other times, they were viewed as derivative of previous Greek theory. Either way, they were preserved as some of the best Latin writings in history. For a good reason, some people say that in order to study Latin, you have to study Cicero. But for now, that's it for this week's episode of Royally Screwed. I hope you enjoyed the journey. Be sure to subscribe to the show, tell a friend, and follow the Denim Creek page on Twitter and Instagram for more info about each episode. Next time we're staying in Rome to continue the Julio-Claudian saga. We're moving from Cicero, a figure who stood for the might of the Republic, to the start of the journey of a young man who is sometimes considered the depths of the depravity of the Empire. It's about time we started the wild chapter in Roman history over Caligula.